I would just say that if you look at our history, everything good that has come from two young people moving into the Lower East Side of Manhattan's most dangerous neighborhood to God leading them out across the river to New Jersey and eventually on an exodus to start a community in Colorado and then the birth of the Texas church and the protection of the enemy from within and without every step of the way, none of it would have been remotely possible without the power of the Spirit. Any ideal of community pursued apart from the dynamic, sometimes scary activity of the Holy Spirit is folly and it will end in absolute shipwreck. This is everything. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. There's no hope. There's no chance. Our mission as the church is to become like Jesus. And what was Jesus? Except a human being totally submitted to the Spirit of God inside. This defined his existence. He said he did nothing except what the Father prompted. He spoke nothing except what the Father gave. He did nothing of his own fleshly initiative, but only as the Spirit was directing. God is Spirit. Jesus said that to the woman at the well. God is Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So the truth is so important. And we've been delving into that and we're still in that today. But the whole point is that we might find an enduring relationship of life in the Holy Spirit. We, have never, we will never get to a place where we have enough. We will never get to a place where we have learned enough that we don't need the Spirit. I could sit here and tell you miracles, one after another after another. And you say, oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that sweet? No, no, it was survival. (laughs) It was the difference between total failure, being wiped off the map, and making it thus far. So it's not a little icing on the cake. It's everything to us. And that is exactly what my dad would have said. It is not the periphery. It is the center. It is the heartbeat. It is the very possibility of everything that God wants to do. Amen? Amen? Amen. So as we talk about life in the Spirit, that's what I want us to think about. And I want us to consider that what I've really just said is the kingdom of God is impossible without a different view and a different experience of the Holy Spirit. And that, in a sense, is very similar to something Jesus once said. What was the context in which Jesus introduced rebirth? The kingdom. That's the answer. The kingdom. Quest for the kingdom was the first time He introduced rebirth. It was not personal Reformation, it was not a desire to be forgiven. It was a man who was seeking the kingdom, Nicodemus. I've elaborated on this in other contexts, and I hope I can be more brief now. 
But Jesus introduces rebirth in answer to the question, where's the kingdom? Where's the kingdom? And he wants us to understand that whatever this thing is that we call the kingdom, it is a reality that can only be perceived through the medium of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Explain to me how the kingdom can only be perceived through the medium of the Holy Spirit. Why is that so? Brother Howard said only the Spirit knows the things of God. Okay? God is Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. What is he implying with that statement to Nicodemus? What he's implying is that the kingdom is spiritual. Amen. Because he says you have to be born again in order to enter or see the kingdom. And Nicodemus is puzzled and he says, don't, be mar don't marvel that I say you must be born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. So his implication is the kingdom is spiritual. If it were fleshly, you could walk into it right now. And that is what they all anticipated was a fleshly kingdom. Why do we say that the kingdom is spiritual? In what sense is the kingdom spiritual? Somebody give me some kingdom scriptures. Kingdom talk. Show me that it's spiritual. His statement to Nicodemus, you cannot see it unless you're born again. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty defining statement. Pretty defining statement. What's another defining statement about the kingdom of God? Okay, my kingdom is not of this world, but it is supposed to be in this world, isn't it? What does he say in his prayer? Our Father, your kingdom, come. your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. What does he say about when the kingdom's going to come? Most assuredly, I say to you, there are those standing here. What? Until they see the kingdom present with power. Who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Come with power. Present with power. Okay? Luke 10. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, Jesus did not see the kingdom as a political nation fighting against another political nation. He saw a spiritual warfare behind all of that nationalistic conflict. And he saw two big camps, God and the devil. And we know the devil's camp because the devil showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their glory in a moment of time and said, they belong to me and I give them to whomever I wish. Jesus didn't dispute that they belong to him because he is the God of this world. He is the ruler of this world. He is the prince of this age. And as John said, all the kingdoms of this world lie under the control of the evil one. So, Jesus saw that there, was, there were two great spiritual powers. And He wanted to bring the power of God into human existence, into human experience. And what that was going to look like was overcoming the power of the devil, overcoming spiritual evil power with spiritual good power. <laughs> if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If the, the supernatural power of the devil is losing to the supernatural power of God, then that's where the kingdom is real. Capish? Amen. Amen. So, when Jesus is giving the church or the representation of the church, the 70, the power to operate in the gifts of the Spirit, what occurs? 
He sends the 70 out to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to function in the power of the Spirit. And they come back to Him and they sit there marveling, they're rejoicing because they did it and it worked. And what does He say? He said, Behold, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. He rejoiced greatly. He was very happy. It's the happiest moment in his entire ministry when he sees 70 people start to move in the power of the Spirit. Amen. And he says, oh, I see it. I see how the king of terror is going to come down. I see how the power of the enemy is going to fall down. We know that Hebrews in the second chapter summarizes the power of the devil. How does he do it? It says, all their lifetime, that the devil controls people all their lifetime through the fear of death. So we see how resurrection was going to strike at the very heart of the devil's control on people's lives. Somebody was going to come and break the chains of death once and for all. <laughs> Christ's ambition was to see Satan fall from his high and exalted throne of terror over the people of God. And that was going to happen as we begin to move in the power of the Spirit. So when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he's expecting a natural kingdom. We have to assume that because Jesus always speaks to people's true intentions instead of the words spoken by them. Amen. The Lord discerned that, and so he started talking about the kingdom. And Jesus is a little hard on poor Nick. <laughs> Don't you think so? I mean, the term born again has never been used in human existence. I mean, this is this is foreign concept. And, and he's just test drove it for the first time and he's beaten up on Nick for acting surprised. <laughs> Nicodemus is like, what? How, does, how can this be? And Jesus says, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? And he's like, hmm? that's a put down if I ever heard one. <laughs> Why does Jesus think Nicodemus should know these things as a teacher in Israel? All of the expectation of Jesus' day was natural. They saw natural rule of natural Rome and they wanted a natural Messiah with a real white horse and a real glistening sword who would chase these goons out of our town and give us back the Davidic reign. And Jesus is mad about it. And he, this is a theme throughout His ministry. He is exasperated at their natural mindedness at their inability to think spiritually. I think he might still be exasperated sometimes with us at our inability to think spiritually. So I ask, why should the teacher of Israel, why should someone studying the Old Testament, why should he, be, why should he have been expecting a spiritual phenomenon instead of a natural phenomenon? In Jeremiah 31.31, the Lord predicts the coming of Messiah and He says, Behold, I will do a new thing. <laughs> I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the one I made before when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, but I'm going to internalize this covenant. 
I'm going to write it on their hearts. And I will cause them to walk in my ways. Something's going to be changed. No more will each man teach his neighbor saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So the Messianic student should have known that God was going to do something new. And that it was going to be totally different than the past. And it was going to equal the internalization of God's heart and will into our hearts so that we would have the power both to obey and to know Him in a true relationship. No more will they all say, each to his neighbor, know the Lord, for they will all know Me. In Isaiah 43.19, the Lord says, Behold, I will do something new. Water, the Spirit, like a metaphor of water in a desert, is going to burst out of dry ground. Amen. I'm going to pour out My Spirit on you. In, in uh, Joel, he says, In the last days, saith God, I'm going to pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Amen. Israel's teacher was supposed to know this. In Isaiah 32.15 it says, Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, then the desert will be an orchard and the orchard will seem like a forest. In Isaiah 44 it says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and currents on the dry ground. I will pour out My Spirit on your descendants and My blessing on your offspring. Zechariah, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on Me whom they have pierced and mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So we're going to have some outpouring of power corresponding to the loss of a firstborn son. Stop looking for a champion with a sword and start looking for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Zephaniah, For then I will give, the people, give to the people purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him shoulder to shoulder. He's describing unity when they all come together of one mind and one accord. Ezekiel 36, And I will pour my spirit, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to carefully observe my ordinance. 37, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, have spoken and I will do it, declares Yahweh. Ezekiel 39, I will no longer hide my face, which is my presence in Hebrew, my presence from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. You see why God was mad at Nick? He thought Nicodemus should have been looking for the outpouring of the Spirit, when in fact he was looking for a champion on a horse with a shiny sword. So, to Nicodemus' confusion, the Lord says, Are you Israel's teacher and you don't know these things? I have spoken to you earthly things and you do not understand. What would you do if I spoke heavenly things? Meaning that what he's spoken, while it describes spiritual realities, it's supposed to come on earth. He says, do not marvel that I say you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth. You know not whither it cometh from or whither it goest, but you hear the sound of it. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This scripture has been quoted and, and misquoted and taught and mistaught a lot. But remember, this is a guy who's hearing about rebirth for the first time. And there is a, a major intellectual burp happening in his thinking. 
and, and he's trying to get around how on earth this rebirth concept can make sense. And the Lord says to him, don't marvel that I say you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth. And this wind is, in the Greek, is, is pneuma. From which we get pneumatology. It's the same word, spirit and wind. It's the same exact word. Is it the same in Hebrew as well? Yes, ruach? ruach? Amen. The Ruach. He probably was speaking Aramaic or Hebrew. The Ruach, the breath of God, blows where it listeth, where it wants to blow. You don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going, but you hear the sound of it. You hear the sound of it, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now this is important. We could generalize this. Let me, share, let me tell you what he didn't say. Well, rebirth is generally like the wind, you know. You don't understand how it works, so we don't understand how people are reborn either. That's not what he said. He said, it is like the wind in that you don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going, but you do hear a sound. And then he says, so it is, not with rebirth, but he says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So if, if we didn't have any other scripture, that's where the Bible ended. We would have to say that Jesus is describing a cataclysmic change that is supposed to occur in every believer's life. Amen. And to the unknowing, they need to look for the activity of the Spirit that they don't know where it's coming from and they don't know where it's going, but they need to look for a sound that you hear with everyone who receives it. Does he say that this is, going to, that this is a general policy? and a general way of thinking about, the, about it? Or does he say that this will occur with everyone who is born of the Spirit? Amen. I just think it's important that we ponder that. This is something that's supposed to occur with everyone who is born of the Spirit. When Jesus says in Matthew 11, when he talks about John the Baptist, he differentiates John by the way he was born. He says, among those born of women, uh, can we agree that that's everybody? Yes. There were no test tube babies at that time. <laughs> among those born of women, John the Baptist, and there were no births by men at that time either. <laughs> John the Baptist is the greatest. But the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So the differentiation is how you're born decides whether you're in the kingdom or not. The least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now we know that Jesus was born of the Spirit because the angel comes to Joseph in the middle of the night when the poor fiancé is scared and he says, Joseph, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we can categorically state that Jesus was born of the Spirit. Amen. How many people were born of the Spirit before Jesus? None. Zip, nada, none. 
Nobody was ever born of the Spirit before Jesus. And nobody is naturally or initially born of the Spirit. We are reborn of the Spirit. We are born again, and the second time we get it right. Why do we say that nobody was born of the Spirit before Jesus? He says the Spirit was not yet given, and you quote Romans 8. It's mentioned three times that Jesus was the firstborn of many brethren, that He was the first fruits, amen, and that the Spirit was not ever given until Jesus was glorified. Somebody says, well, look at the Old Testament. The Spirit is at work. These people were full of the Spirit. I agree. But there is a difference between having the Spirit as a reality in your life and being born of the Spirit in this new way, new thing promised through all the prophets. Whatever was going to happen when Messiah came, it was a new thing. Can we say new thing? New thing. And he describes the new thing as I'm going to put my spirit in you. <laughs> That's the new thing. So he's the firstborn of many brethren. It's a new thing. The last time I taught this in a house, we were in Chalice, Idaho. And that it was winter, quite wintry out in fact. And uh, they were serving coffee and biscotti. And the Lord gave me an, a metaphor, an analogy of the difference between uh, contact and immersion with the biscotti. It's this cookie that's, that's baked slow and slow and long until all the moisture is gone. It becomes very shelf-stable at that point. You don't have to worry about it being stale because it's already completely stale. <laughs> and, and, and the marvelous thing is that if you take a piece of biscotti and you try to just bite into it, you're probably going to hurt your gums. It's not easy to chew. Ow, that, that's a lot to bite. But the point is you take that hard cookie and you baptize it. <laughs> it undergoes immersion. And as it undergoes immersion, it, it experiences a molecular change. Little uh, pockets that had lost all their moisture and, and, and really their ability to rot or anything, they change and they come alive. And now they swell up and you can bite it and it's quite delicious. Rusk or biscotti, right? So is it the same to take biscotti and hold it in my hand and reach in and sprinkle some, some coffee on it? Can you bite into it now? Well, it's had contact with water, but there is a difference between contact and immersion. When we talk about people used of God in the Old Testament, they were absolutely anointed by the Holy Spirit. But it was a situational visitation. It was even a constitutional gifting. It was even a consecrated prayer life and, and closeness with God. But there was something totally different that God was promising when He was going to baptize people in the Holy Spirit and fire not many days from now. Amen? So to talk about proximity to the Spirit, even an, an anointing of the Spirit, a situational using, God using you in the Spirit, that's one thing. And that's great. But there's a difference between that and the baptism of the Spirit. When Jesus talks about the coming of the Comforter, He talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Parakletas, the Helper, He does not tell them, you do not know what this is going to be like expect something really weird and strange, but just have the courage to stay put until it comes. Is that what he says to them in John 14, chapter 16? What does he say? 
When He talks about the Spirit, He tells those who have not yet been baptized, you know Him. You know Him. Whenever we talk about a greater level of baptism in the Spirit, Christians get defensive because they say, you think I don't know God. No, I think you do know Him. I think you do know the Spirit. But as He said to the apostles, you know Him because He abides with you. But He will be in you. Amen. And then He tells them, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Showing that He's the Father that's going to remedy the orphan status. He, Jesus, is the Father who remedies the orphan status. So, it's important to understand the difference between being with the Spirit and the Spirit coming inside of you. Being anointed by the Spirit, being wet with the Spirit, and being immersed in the Spirit. Amen? Jesus told the woman at the well, God is Spirit. He went on to say, the water I give... What did He say about the water He would give? Drink it, you'll never thirst. He said, the water I give will become in you a fountain of living water welling up unto eternal life. Okay? So now we've got two scriptures, one in John 3 and one in John 4. And one describes the Spirit as something that we don't know where it's coming from and we don't know where it's going, but we hear its sound. Now in John 4, it's described as a fountain that is welling up. If you had a fountain inside of you and it started welling up, where would it come out? Where would it come out? The back of your head? Your belly button? No, it would come out your mouth. So if there's going to be a fountain, that also is tying into some, it's giving us some sense of where this sound might be coming from. We look at John 7 on the greatest day of the feast. This is the feast that we just went through. On the last day, the bombings occurred, the, the terrorist attack occurred. By that time in, in Israel's tradition, the Feast of Sukkot, and spe specifically the last day, was the jo most joyous day of the entire year. On the Temple Mount, everybody would gather. Correct me if I got this wrong. And at that time, you just picture, picture in Jerusalem, okay? And it's the last and greatest day of the feast. And multitudes upon multitudes are gathered. Historians say that the old men would be stamping their canes and, and people would be dancing and there would be the sound of laughter and the uproar of joy. And the, the priest would go down with a great big bull and he'd go down to the pool of Shiloh or Siloam, which is translated scent. And he would take water from the pool of Shiloh and bring it up and he would pour it out like on the Temple Mount among all those people. And he would pour it out on the last and greatest day of the feast. And what was he pouring it out? To symbolize that one day God was going to pour out His Spirit on the people. And the promise that this would one day happen electrified the multitude and made it the happiest moment in all of the year. Someday, God's going to give us the Spirit. Someday, this water is going to pour out and quench the thirsty soul. You know, when this feast began, I believe it's a seven-day feast, but when this feast began, Jesus' brothers told Him, Why are you not going to the feast? No one who wants to be known hides himself 
Why are you not going to the feast? Let yourself be seen. He said, no. He said, your time is any time. But my time has not yet come. Sometimes his time was the difference between day one and day seven. Sometimes his time was the difference between minutes as when his mother told him to perform a miracle and he rebuked her and said, this isn't my time. And then a little bit later, it was his time. She was just ahead of time by about five minutes. I, I won't say that's a theme for moms, but just in general. <laughs> that's not a comment on my mom. <laughs> um, so, so on the last and greatest day of the feast, at this moment where the whole community is anticipating the outpouring of the Spirit, Jesus stands up and cries out with this huge voice that arrests the tension of the whole multitude. And He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And we're not left to wonder what he was speaking about. Because John says he spoke this about the Spirit. And listen to his, his language. Whom those believing in him, present tense, would receive future tense. For as yet the Spirit was not given because Jesus was not glorified. Whatever happened in terms of the Spirit prior to His ascent to heaven, it was not called the giving, the outpouring. It was not yet the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises and of what He had promised in Luke 24. In Luke 24, 49, when He gives the Great Commission, He adds on, Go and tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to remain in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Did Peter have an anointing? He cast out demons. He raised the dead. Of course he did. Was Peter able to move in the Spirit at times in his life? Yes. Did he know the Spirit of God? Yes. Jesus told him, you know Him, for He has been with you. But was Peter baptized in the Spirit? No, he was not. And we have to face a marked difference between the Peter who denied Jesus and the Peter who stood on the day of Pentecost and, and said before a multitude, men and brethren, these men are not drunk as you suppose. There was a huge change in the power available to this man. He was part of the 70. He had worked miracles. He had walked on water. Amen. But there was something that he hadn't overcome. The fear of death hadn't been cast out. Self-preservation was still controlling his life. He needed to be clothed with power from on high. Jesus says the same thing in Acts 1. Acts 1, 5-8. He says the same thing. You're going to be baptized with the Spirit and power. I will send the promise of my Father upon you. Wait in the city. And, and we know what happened. They went down there. They had just asked, are you going to restore the kingdom? He ascended into heaven. He's glorified. Now the coming, the outpouring is about to occur. He has ascended into heaven like Moses ascended onto Sinai. And he's going to give gifts. He's not going to give the law. He's going to give the Holy Spirit. But it says when the day 
of Pentecost had fully come. What was the day of Pentecost? What did it celebrate? Brother Tzafrir? First fruits and the receiving of the law in Sinai. By this point, the feast celebrating first fruits and the giving of the law was one event at Pentecost. The first fruits is always indicative of the Holy Spirit because the first tree to bud is the almond tree. You go all the way back to the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of Covenant, what, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The manna from heaven, which is the word of life. Aaron's rod, which was what? It was an almond branch that had budded. It was the idea that the authority of God was going to come alive. That which was a dead rod of the law was going to come alive in the life of the Spirit. Amen. And what else is in the, in the Ark of the Covenant? The commandment. The tablet. And so God was going to write the commandment on our hearts. He was going to give us the true manna from heaven. And He was going to make that almond branch blossom. And so when the day of Pentecost had fully come, He who had ascended now descended as Moses did in the form of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together of one mind and one accord. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. I want to point out here that the word sound is not phone. It is not the same word that Jesus used in John because He's talking about something from heaven. A mighty rushing wind. There came from heaven a sound as of a mighty rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And there appeared to them divided tongues like as of fire, one resting on each of them. Each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in unknown tongues as the Spirit of God gave utterance. And when this sound of unknown tongues occurred, now the word is the exact word Jesus used in John 3, 7, when He said you hear its sound. When this phone, when this voice occurred, those in Jerusalem began to mock and others to marvel, saying, are they drunk? Some said they're drunk. Some said this. Peter stood up and he said, these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is yet the thir only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit. This is the outpouring. This is the new thing. This is what has never happened because Jesus has never been glorified until He just was from the Mount of Olives when He ascended. Now He's giving gifts unto men. Amen. Amen. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will see visions and your old young men will dream dreams or vice versa. And upon My maidservants and male servants, I will pour out My Spirit. He continues... So God has poured forth this which you both see and hear. hear. So whatever the outpouring of the Spirit is, it's something we see and it's something we hear. Amen. You hear the sound of it with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Amen. He continued, they said, what should we do? He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, 
and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise, that's the label Jesus has used this entire time to describe this outpouring at Pentecost. For the promise is only for a select few on this day, and it won't ever happen like this again, but ain't it a marvelous thing, and aren't you relieved that... Uh, no. For the promise is for you. And it's for your children. And it's for your children's children. And for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words, He solemnly testified to them, saying, Save yourself from this wicked and perverse generation. Amen. So they heard the sound, and they were all filled, and they found power. Not the power of situational anointing, but the power of total reconstitution of having been baptized. And those who once cowered before a servant girl were now beaten and still stood before the Sanhedrin and said, we will not stop preaching in this man's name. Amen. They had what they'd been missing. They had what Jesus had. They were full of the Spirit and power. And then we go on and we see this same thing. In Acts 8, we see that Philip goes and he preaches the Gospel in Samaria and many, the whole village, believes in him. Miracles are performed. They're all baptized, including a sorcerer. Oops. And, but it says the Holy Spirit had come on none of them. So believing wasn't receiving the Spirit. Being baptized wasn't receiving the Spirit. And there's no new standard of this watered-down, non-existent event that we've been given in Scripture. Philip knows what receiving the Spirit looks like. So he sends to Jerusalem and asks for apostles, Peter and John, to come down. And when Peter and John laid their hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. You say, what, what happened? Well, we don't know what happened. But the sorcerer didn't offer money for the gift of healing that Philip had, had used. He didn't offer money for the gift of preaching and teaching that he had used or the gift of baptizing in water. But whenever he sees Peter and John lay hands, something so stupendous occurs that the sorcerer is reaching for his pocketbook. Can I have that? I want to have the power to lay hands on whomever I wish and them to forthwith receive the Spirit. Of course, Peter had some less than favorable comments about this approach. Uh, he saw it as cynicism and therefore coming from bitterness and he said his money should perish with him. So then we go to Acts 10. And uh, the Holy Spirit falls on them. While Peter is yet speaking, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles and those who are of the circumcision are astonished. Why are they astonished? For they heard them speaking in tongues. They heard the same sound that occurred at Pentecost. They heard the sound that Jesus said would occur with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And they marveled and they said, Who can forbid water? that these should be baptized. He told the apostles in the next chapter, God gave them the Spirit just as He gave us at the beginning. We don't have any Scripture that tells us some are going to get it one way and some are going to get it another way. We have a Scripture saying a sound occurs with everyone who is born of it. And we have a Scripture saying this promise at Pentecost in chapter 2 is for everyone. Amen. That's what we have. And then we have a consistency throughout the entire thing. 
We have Acts 19 when, when Paul lays his hands on the Ephesus believers. First, he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's a nonsensical question for those who think that believing is receiving. It is not. They said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we have not heard about this. When he laid his hands on them, he commanded them to be baptized. When he laid his hands upon them, they began to speak in other tongues and glorify God and to prophesy. Amen. So what am I saying? I'm saying the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And this is not the end of our walk with God. This is not the, the last step, the last threshold, and then we give up. But God wants to take full possession over human lives. He wants to, us to trust Him with all of our hearts. Amen? Every single one of us and every sincere Christian knows the Spirit. You know Him, for He has been with you, but God wants to be in you. You know Him. They know what it feels like to sit under anointed preaching and feel the anointing. That's the Spirit. They know what it feels like to sing and worship together and hearts to be moved and tears to flow. They know what it feels like. They know what it is. We know it. It's not something strange. But there is a greater blessing. There is a greater immersion. There is a greater degree of surrender and yieldedness that God would call us to. And that's where we're going to slip beyond the visitations that Peter had with the Spirit and get into the immersion that made him able to make the proclamation on the day of Pentecost.